Abner Mares is a world champion boxer, Olympian, sports commentator, and most importantly, dad to two little girls. Beloved by abuelas and hardcore fans alike, Abner is a pro at entertaining the world both in and out of the ring. On Blue Wire's new podcast, On the Hook with Abner Mares, we'll hear from Abner, his family, fellow athletes, and other people who made him the boxer and the man he is. They'll chat about topics like the state of boxing and sports, music, culture, and family life, along with being a husband and a girl dad. So listen to On the Hook with Abner Mares wherever you get your podcasts. Episodes in English out on Tuesdays and episodes in Spanish out on Wednesdays. Blue Wire. With the first pick in the 2009 NFL Draft, the Detroit Lions select Matthew Stafford. Stafford, step it up. Going left side. Watch Calvin. Enzo got him. Oh, baby, that was a rocket. And it's picked off. Intercepted by Darius Slade. No one will catch him. Touchdown Lions. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Michael Rothstein Show. I am your host, Michael Rothstein. This episode brought to you by Indeed, Pepsi, and Bet Online. Go check all of them out. Give them some of your business. I'd appreciate it. I'm sure they'd appreciate it as well as they have all been sponsors for multiple weeks of this program. And it's Friday, so you know what that means. That means it's preview day. We're going to get into the Atlanta Falcons and the Detroit Lions, what the Falcons have looked like, what we could expect on Sunday with Tori McElhaney, the Atlanta Falcons beat writer from The Athletic. She was kind enough to join the program, and we'll get chatting with her in a few minutes. But before we get there, just want to hit on one thing that happened today with the Lions. Good news for Detroit. Marvin Jones returned to practice. Frank Ragnow returned to practice. And Trey Flowers returned to practice. We talked a little bit about that yesterday, what the importance of all three of those guys are. Obviously, Trey Flowers, the most important of those three, as good as Frank Ragnow is, the Lions have a little bit more depth on the offensive line to potentially replace him if they needed to, including Joe Dahl. But Trey Flowers, if the Lions had to replace him, I still don't know what they would do. I actually asked Matt Patricia that question on Thursday, and he basically said that they cross-train a lot of guys, so you could end up seeing some possible linebackers over there. You could see some interior defensive linemen To me, that probably says Nick Williams or Deshaun Hand get some reps there. Romeo Aquara would be in for a massive, massive day if he had to play over there. So, and I mean, he obviously already plays over there, but had to play over there without Trey Flowers. So it would be a tough go for them, I think, if Trey Flowers did not play. But good news for the Lions because he seems to be trending in a positive direction from his wrist injury, practicing on a limited basis. So we'll see what happens here on Friday, as that's always a key day to maybe give a sense for availability, unless it's a scheduled day of rest, which we used to see with some players back in the day, really before the Matt Patricia era. And that will be something to watch. But good news, really, for many Lions players that have been on the injury list. The only guy who did not practice on Thursday is Desmond Trufant, as he would look like. He is, once again, trending towards not playing and that would mean more of Amani Owarie and Jeff Okuda and Daryl Roberts as their main cornerbacks. And that group has, has started to perform better. I think Amani Owarie has done a pretty good job here over the last few weeks and is really staking a claim to maybe being Detroit's best cornerback, even when Desmond Trufant returns. And that'll lead to potentially an interesting question of what you do with Trufant versus, say, Jeff Okuda. Because you want Okuda to get the experience, but can you really afford to sit him? Also, Justin Coleman returned to practice. He's still on injured reserve, but the fact that he's practicing is a good sign. Maybe they get him back sooner rather than later, and that would then bolster their spot in the slot, which they really need at this point, as Daryl Roberts has played pretty well, but Justin Coleman's one of the better slot corners in the league. So, 
all of that happened on Thursday for the Lions. We'll see what all that means for Friday, for Sunday. And we'll be back right after this break with Tori McElhaney from The Athletic. Stick around. Even though sports had a break, your business didn't. You have to keep moving, and that makes hiring more important than ever, and Indeed is here to help. Indeed.com is the number one job site in the world because Indeed gets you the best people fast. Unlike other sites, Indeed gives you full control and payment flexibility over your hiring. You only pay for what you need. You can pause your account at any time, and there are no long-term contracts. Plus, Indeed provides powerful tools to make your search that much easier, like sponsored jobs, which are shown to be three and a half times more likely to result in a hire. With 73% of online job seekers visiting Indeed each month, Indeed is going to get you the important hire you need, just like they have for over 3 million businesses. Right now, Indeed is offering our listeners a free $75 credit to boost your job post, which means more quality candidates will see it fast. Try Indeed out with a free $75 credit at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. This is their best offer available anywhere. Go right now to Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Offer valid through December 31st. And thanks to the lack of natural athleticism or commitment or just overbearing sports parents, and I know those, Fewer than 1% of 1% of 1% of people will ever play professional football. But instead of entering the NFL, they've joined another league, the League of Football Watchers. If you're listening to this podcast, you're probably one of them. This football season will be different, and Pepsi is here to get you ready for game day, no matter how much you watch. That could even mean watching the Lions, who won in Jacksonville, maybe resurrecting their season a little bit. We'll see, obviously, what happens here down the road, but you can have Pepsi while you're watching them because Pepsi is the refreshment you need to power through any game day because Pepsi isn't made for those who play the game. It's made for those who watch it. Pepsi made for football watching. Now, back to our show. My next guest on the Michael Rothstein Show covers the Atlanta Falcons for the athletic Tori McElhaney. Welcome to the show. Did I get your name right? That's like a big thing for me. <laughs> yes, yes, you got it right. So, so good on you. <laughs> All right, good, because we were talking about that before we started recording. So first question when it comes to the Falcons is, is probably a pretty simple one. What's it like these days around that team? Because there's been so much upheaval in the last two and a half, three weeks. It's been, it's been really interesting because this team – you know, during the first five games and the entire conversation after they lost, really after they lost to Chicago, like take the Dallas game for what it was, like really weird situation, really one of the one of the biggest mental busts I think you'll see this year in terms of like NFL games, but take that for what it was. But I really do think after the Chicago loss where Chicago came back and won, that was when you really started to get the sense that like, okay, if they do not turn this around, immediately if they do not turn it around right now you're looking at a situation where Dan Quinn will not make it to the bye week so you knew that in every single conversation that we had with Dan Quinn with these players it was about that and that makes it really hard to like uh, it's just you know you never want to have to ask people over and over about their job security like we don't do that in our everyday lives so having to do this with like all these guys it's just like ugh it kind of makes going to work not that great. Um, but that aside, it, it, I mean, it has been just absolutely insane the last, really the last like 10 days-ish, since, literally since they lost to Carolina and then Dan Quinn and Thomas Dimitrov are fired and um, Raheem Morris is the, uh, announced as the interim. They make all these different like coaching adjustments and changes and um, and, and then you have all the stuff with like COVID-19 and having to shut down the facility for a day. And then they go and win at Minnesota. Like it's been an incredibly crazy week and a half covering this team. And the vibe with the team is that they just needed that win. Like it was really that simple. They just needed a win. They needed motivation. They needed a boost of confidence. They needed some type of momentum swing because those first five games weren't weren't fun. 
no one was having fun. So that's kind of the way that it's been the last, you know, that's a synopsis of the last like couple weeks for you. Uh, how much of, of that was Dan Quinn? Like how much of that was him being the problem? I think it's, it's hard to say because, you know, sometimes when you get into these situations where you have, you know, a coach at the end of his uh, stint with a team, a lot of times you see the team start to turn on the coach or the coaching staff and you start hearing things from these players and like you, you can kind of like, you know, are, they're articulating things and they're trying not to step on toes, but you know, sometimes it just comes out and, and, and you get to really see how they feel about a coach or a coaching staff. I never got that vibe about Dan Quinn I, from these players. Like these players were always like, you know, we're pointing the finger at ourselves. We need to play better. We're not, we're, we're just not playing well right now. Like in every single time you heard that over and over. And then you also heard it from like the coordinators and the assistant coaches. Like we need to be better for Dan Quinn. I've said this before and I'll say it again. Like Dan Quinn never lost that locker room from like, from the me looking in from the outside, like on these zoom calls and Microsoft teams calls, I never got that vibe. So it's hard for me to sit here and say like, yeah, no, it was absolutely Dan Quinn. But what I will say is in the week now that we have had Raheem Morris as the interim, he's kind of lit a fire under them a little bit more than I think Dan Quinn was like Dan Quinn's whole mantra is like that. He's a, a, a coaches a players coach and like and I mean he was all these players greatly respected him and I have a lot of respect for Dan Quinn he I mean I've only been on the beat for two and a half months and he was always really great to talk to and but really and truly to a certain extent I think you needed somebody who was going to go in and kind of whip them into shape and be like look like you're getting paid a lot of money to go out and win games go out and win games like play better and I think that's what you're seeing Raheem Morris do where he's kind of like, this ain't going to cut it. Like, you got to go out and play. And what you've been doing for the first five games isn't going to cut it. So go play better. I need more from you. And that's been his message for the last week. And I do think you saw, even though, yeah, that it was a one-in-four Minnesota team that they played, like, I think you did see them go out and play with a little bit more fire. Was the Thomas Dimitrov firing more surprising than Dan Quinn? Or was it – because, like, in Detroit right now – Bob Quinn and Matt Patricia seem pretty well linked. And for those who are listening to the podcast, I'm sure everything that Tori just said sounds very, very familiar <laughs> with what's going on with Matt Patricia at the moment. But was the Dimitrov part of this surprising or was it very similar that these two guys were going to be tied one way or the other in making this move? I, I do think that they were tied. I, I do think so. I think there were a lot of people that were surprised that it happened maybe the way that it did, like that they both were like out, like immediately by 10 o'clock, like they lose to Carolina at four o'clock and by 10 o'clock they're both out. Like, I think that was a very surprising move um, that you saw both of them get, <laughs> get fired immediately. Um, but I do think that when you look at uh, like, I, I do think that Thomas Dimitrov was linked to how Dan Quinn was going to do, was going to be as a coach. And I, I think that his career was linked to Dan Quinn's here in Atlanta um, because, you know, he did, uh, he, he was there. I mean, he, he survived one coaching change and now you're getting into number two and it's like, how many GMs can survive, you know, two significant coaching changes. And um, so I think, to a certain extent, you did look at it that they were they were pretty linked. What you kind of talked about a little bit with Raheem Morris kind of lighting a fire under them a little bit. What has he changed, maybe schematically or personnel-wise? Granted, it's only been 10 days or so. Has there been significant enough change that you're like, okay, wow, that's gonna be different, or incrementally, week over week, he's gonna start doing X maybe a little bit more? That's a good question, and I think that's something that we'll get more clarity on as the weeks go on. Um, but I don't think, like, personnel-wise, he didn't change anything. Like, the guys who were going out there are the guys who were going out there for Dan Quinn. Granted, I will say this, Dan Quinn in those last five games, I mean, the entire defense was beat up. Like, you look at that secondary, and there wasn't anybody out there by, like, that last game that Dan Quinn coached. Um, it was really – I mean – that was really, really tough, especially in Green Bay when you didn't have like seven starters. Um, pretty, pretty significant. 
And then Julio Jones being out, having to, you know, he, he's had that hamstring issue for almost the entire year at this point, and he's had to miss a couple of games. And so not having Julio Jones. It, it, so I think, like, all of that considered, like, personnel-wise, Raheem is just getting all these guys back. So th- nothing really changed there. I don't really think you're seeing a lot of schematic changes either because Dirk Cutter is, is still the offensive coordin- coordinator. And the way that the Falcons do it, Jeff Ulbrich, who's now the defensive coordinator, he, he kind of slid in with Raheem. He, Jeff Ulbrich and Raheem Morris have been very collaborative in their defensive play calling. I mean, they have been since Raheem jumped over to the offense last, last year. So um, schematically, I don't think you're really seeing any changes either. I do think it's really a whole, like, mental game with, the, with this team. It's like, hey, like, you just need to play better. Like, we're, we're doing everything we can on our end to, like, clean things up. And, like, you, but you have to be the ones to go clean it up. Like, and that was something that Raheem said. He was like, us as coaches, we got to figure out, like, what is wrong? Like, what's going wrong? And then when we find it and we figure it out, it's up to the play. We can't make these players fix it. They got to want to fix it. So I think that more than anything, more than personnel, more than schematics, like, more than play calling, like, that's, that's what it boils down to, for me at least, when I'm watching this team. I know this is year one for you on the beat, but you've been in Georgia for a while. Julio Jones, 31 now still averaging 87.5 yards per game. But for Julio Jones, that's very average, <laughs> you know. But is, is that just where Julio Jones is at his, in his career now? Or is that literally the hamstring and you expect that well, as he gets healthier, he's going to become still be Julio Jones, the maybe second best receiver in football? I think, I mean, I think it goes back to what we were able to see on Sunday against Minnesota. Like, he, it's the first time that he's gotten back and he's been, I don't know how close to 100% he is. I think it's, I think that hamstring is still kind of bothering him a bit. But that was the first time that I think maybe since the very first game of the season, you saw Julio look a lot more like Julio. I mean, he had like that, that 40 yard catch, he had a 35 yard catch, he had a touchdown run, like all this stuff. It was Julio looking like he normally looks. So I, I do attribute a lot of it to that hamstring because um, I know everybody will talk about, you know, where he is in his career. But Julio Jones is Julio Jones, and I do think that he's going to go out there and he's going to still be one of the best receivers in the game. Um, and I wish that he would have been healthy throughout the course of those first five games of the season. It would have been interesting to see maybe – how much of a difference maker he would have been in those games. Um, but obviously didn't have that. And now you're going to get to see if he stays healthy, that's what you're going to get to see. And I think what he does when he's healthy now that we haven't seen him is going to be really important to deciding like, okay, where is Julio Jones in his career? Do we see him lasting a couple more years or is this like pretty is this closing in on the end? And I think, if he gets healthy, if he gets to 100% with that hamstring, I think that answer will be a bit more clear as we move forward in the next maybe like four or five weeks. This is going to be a very unfair question. I'm just going to preface it as such. But if Julio Jones is healthy, do you still think – do you think Dan Quinn's still the coach of this team? That's a great question. And that's something that, like, I've thought about because, it's like, even with Julio Jones, do you win any of those games? And I've, I've thought about that a lot because I'm like, how much we talk about Julio Jones being a, a difference maker, but we also talk about Julio Jones sometimes like not, he's not the guy that you go to like for touchdowns because of the way defensives like cover him and, and the way that, you know, these defensive coordinators are having to scheme against him. So I, I think the issues with the defense were too, they were too much for it just to have just just to have Julio Jones back out there the issues that the Falcons defense were having I don't think they would have offset like I I think that the absence of Julio was not as weighted as the uh, the absence of this defense and how poorly this this defense played at times um so I I don't know if Julio plays I still kind of think that if, if Julio would have played in those games, I still think that Dan Quinn being the defensive guy that he is and the defense isn't performing, I, I do think that's enough to be like, okay, if, if Julio Jones plays, like 
it wasn't the fact that Julio didn't play. It was the fact that the Falcons couldn't, the Falcons defense couldn't get off the field. I think it was after week two, maybe it was week four, that there was a running joke on Twitter, which is clearly the arbiter of all things funny, uh, or not at all, that when the Lions and Falcons played, because all they do is give up leads, that like basically they just end the game at the end of the third quarter. How much of a weight do you think may be lifted from the players of just like that ended up being such the thing with Dan Quinn's era was Mm -hmm. what happened in the Super Bowl and then kind of everything since. Do you think that that's part of it too with maybe why they played as well as they did against the Vikings and and under Raheem, that's just a different voice, a different message and that thought of, you know, 28-3 gone. I honestly, I wrote about this. I think it would, I can't remember exactly when, when I wrote this, like it might've been after the Chicago loss, I think was when it was. And I, I wrote the, I wrote that they're talking about this narrative that the Falcons have about not being able to finish games. Like that, that's the narrative. But at what point did it turn into a full on identity crisis and this be in this no longer be like just a narrative of this team and just like a funny joke. When did it turn into it being like the Falcons identity and who they are as like a team and as an organization, when did that shift? And I think that you look at, I mean, it goes back to the Super Bowl and you look at the remnants of that and like the Falcons kind of did become the butt of the joke about not being able to finish games and blowing these gigantic leads and to do it two weeks in a row in 2020 was just further like affirmation of that and that I mean it was just that was something that you think of and it's like okay so how much of this is mental like how much is this a serious like mental block for this team that they get in the fourth quarter and they're up and then one thing happens and they can't figure out a way to get the momentum back like it's a serious identity crisis is what I think it ended up being so yeah I do think there's something to be said about maybe just like shaking things up a little bit just to kind of get your head off of what you you maybe thought your identity as an organization was because I know from talking to Arthur Blank from talking to Rich McKay they they want to get away from that like obviously they they they're they're like we want a winning program we don't want to be a 500 team like that's not how we run businesses we're not 500 like businesses like we don't want our team to be 500 so yeah, I do think that there's probably – I don't know if any player – I don't know if any coach would ever come out and say that, that, like, yeah, there was probably, like, a mental, like, thing there. Um, but I kind of think so. It's it's funny we're talking about this because, realistically, everything you just said, other than the coach being fired at this point, you could have just taken Atlanta out, put Detroit in, other than <laughs> also the Super Bowl part of that because the Lions have yet to do that ever. <laughs> and you probably could have just – said exactly what's been going on with Detroit because that's the thing with the Lions. They've lost so many double-digit leads mm-hmm. as well. They, even this season, three of their, you know, all three of their losses have been double-digit leads that they held and then lost. So I guess when you look at kind of where that team is and what you saw where they didn't have that problem on Sunday, was there one thing that stood out to you that you're like, wow, that looks maybe not fixed, but like, this is clearly better and maybe on the road to being fixed? Yeah, that's, I, I love that question because I, there's one specific moment that just pops out of my head. The Falcons are up 10-0. to zero. It's, the, it's the last couple minutes of the first quarter, and Minnesota recovers, and they get the ball back, and um, they, they go down. And, I mean, it's pretty – they don't look like there there's a lot of like opposition from uh from the Falcons defense the Minnesota drives down they get all the way down to the three yard line and they're ready to punch it in and the Falcons come up with one stop two stops three stops and then they stop them on fourth down and they keep them out of the end zone and from then I mean it's 10 to nothing and you're in the second quarter and the Falcons end up getting up by 20 to nothing by the end of the second quarter, that to me, that specific moment where you had your defense be the one to step up was really something that like was really uh, a moment for me that I don't know 
that would have happened in the last five games. I don't, I hate like saying that because there was no situation like that in those first five games, but here's the Fal- here's a Falcons team that had the momentum t- taken from them and they took it right back. And that's something you hadn't seen them do in the first five games of, of this season. And, and so that to me was one moment in, in particular that you kind of saw a mark to mark of a change and like at least some type of spark to, uh, to, to see something different from this Falcons defense that you hadn't seen before. So you look at, at the Falcons defense because you're just talking about it. There's a lot of talented pieces on this defense mm-hmm. in theory, you know, Tack McKinley, Ricardo Allen, Keanu Neal, Deion Jones, Grady Jarrett, Derquez Denard, who's familiar. People are familiar with up here, obviously from Michigan state. Why was it going so wrong? Was it literally just injuries or were there other parts of this that were not fitting together? Early, what Raheem Morris was saying was they were, especially in the secondary, they weren't disguising things very well. They weren't making it hard on any offense, any quarterback. And that, that's a problem. Like if, if you're not, if you're not doing that, if you're not making it hard on a quarterback and, and you see these are, they played Russell Wilson in week one, Dak Prescott in week two. And both of those guys had one of the two of the best days of their careers. Like literally statistic wise, like put up some of their best numbers. That's, that's an issue. And so that, that was one, that was one piece of it. Um, A lot of the talk had been on the pass rush and making sure that the, the Falcons, front seven was actually pressuring the quarterback and early they weren't doing that as much as I think they have been recently granted again playing the Seahawks in week one versus a one in four Minnesota in week six like is obviously a different it's a different dynamic um but I, I do I do think that you see them I know they only had one sack on Sunday against Minnesota but they were getting after they were getting after it a lot more and I do think that you saw AJ Terrell step up as a cornerback and I know he had to miss a game for for COVID-19 and so and Kendall Sheffield's back and Ricardo Allen and Keon O'Neal like some of these key guys in the secondary are back now fully healthy um so I I do think that it was it was probably a a mixture of of some things you you look at the injuries you look at maybe not being able to disguise your secondary very well and your scheme very well. And then you also look at the pass rush and trying to make sure that you're affecting the quarterback. Um, I would say those three, I don't know if one outweighs the other, but those are three very, I think, specific things that they weren't doing that you've seen them sort of start to do a better job of recently. Now we're talking about the defense, obviously Raheem Morris, defensive guy, Dan Quinn was a defensive guy. Was Dan Quinn, even if Raheem Morris was the defensive coordinator, was it still really Dan Quinn's defense? Or did Raheem have a lot of control over the defense where, you know, there he still he was the guy making the decisions? Or was that really Dan Quinn pulling the string pulling pulling the strings from behind the scene, which we see a lot of head coaches do when it's their side of the ball? I honestly, it might be a situation where there were like too many cooks in the kitchen. I know like that, that cliche is used all the time, but (laughs) in this situation, I do feel like to a certain extent, like maybe there was because you have Dan Quinn, obviously who's a defensive minded guy, like as your head coach, you have Raheem Morris who has the defensive coordinator title, but you also have Jeff Ulbrich who is calling plays as well as the linebackers coach and as the uh, assistant head coach. So that's I, I, I'm all about having like collaboration and I'm all about getting a lot of ideas in there. But when you have three guys who all like are kind of participating to a certain extent in the play calling, I, I do think sometimes like things can overlap, they can get jumbled. And, and so I would say that maybe it was a situation like that. Going back over to offense really quickly, Matt Ryan, because we didn't really touch on him much when we were talking about the offense and where is he right now? Because, I mean, you look at the numbers, and the numbers are pretty darn good for Matt Ryan. I mean, they're good for most quarterbacks, but specifically for Matt Ryan, 11 touchdowns, three picks, 65.2 completion percentage. Like, was he playing well in spite of them being bad? Or was are those kind of misnomer numbers a little bit? 
It's a good question. I think uh, I think you saw him the the Matt Ryan who played against Carolina and the Matt Ryan who came out against Minnesota. I think was a guy who was kind of playing with a little bit more fire. I know Matt Ryan and everybody who talks about Matt Ryan and how he prepares and they always talk about him being the same guy no matter what's happening but I just can't imagine that all the questions that we were asking him over the course of the week after Dan Quinn gets fired and we're asking him about his future in Atlanta and kind of being like you know you're probably closing the like you're close to the end of your career like you're getting up there in age for quarterback like the fact that like we were asking him all these like tough questions about like you know playing better um after not playing super well against Carolina and then he goes out and he does what he does against Minnesota and uh, throws four touchdown passes and looks really good um but Raheem Morris we were talking to him the other day and he kind of made the comment he was like you know when you have all your weapons when you have Julio Jones at, like back on the field when you have Calvin Ridley back at 100% as well when you have Russell Gage, Hayden Hurst, even Todd Gurley, like doing some good stuff in the run game because the Falcons have been running the ball better the last two games um, or the two games before this past Sunday. Um, it, when you have everything clicking, it makes Matt Ryan look good. And the fact of the matter is, is he was still putting up numbers even when things weren't clicking for, for this offense. And um, so I think that, you know, he kind of showed like, hey, Y'all can't leave. You can't push me out like just yet. Like you, you, like I can still go out and do some really good things. But it, I mean, it is interesting how his numbers kind of don't really look like a team that's one and like he's the quarterback of a team that's one and five. Right. Absolutely. And that was why I was curious because I, I'll be honest, I haven't watched the Falcons on a week to week basis. You know, you're you're busy watching the team you cover. Right. Todd Gurley, like you mentioned, is he? More like early career Todd Gurley that we saw with the Rams, or is it kind of like 75% Todd Gurley, which is what I think a lot of people were expecting after all the injuries that he's had? Yeah. It's funny because I, I went to UGA, and I was at UGA his last two years. Um, and so I got to see college Todd Gurley. And college Todd Gurley was like, oh gosh, everybody was obsessed with Todd Gurley at UGA. And as they should have been, he did so many good things for, for UGA. And then he goes in his first, you know, couple of years in the league and he's doing some good things in the league as you kind of expected, even coming off of that ACL injury coming out of Georgia. Um, but I, I think that you're looking at a Todd Gurley who yeah, isn't exactly who he was in his first couple of years. And I think you look at, you know, running backs across the league and they all evolve in different ways um, because of the strain on their body. Uh, and, and so, no, you're not looking at a Todd Gurley that is 100% who he was when he came into the league or even his first couple of years in the league. Um, you're looking at a Todd Gurley who has been through a lot and he, he's kind of – he knows what his body can handle. And I think he knows – because you're not looking at Todd Gurley being the workhorse for the Falcons. Like, Brian Hill is getting a lot of carries. I say a lot, a good amount of carries. Uh, so it's not like they're running Todd Gurley out there every single down. It, it's, they're using him, I think, in a, in a smart way um, to make sure that they can get a lot out of him in the burst that he, they are allowed – like, they can have him out on the field. Um, so it's just – you're just looking at a – smarter Todd Gurley a uh, a Todd Gurley who's seen some stuff like you know we always say that like they've seen so much and you're looking at a Todd Gurley who is more mature who has been through a lot in his career and um granted you know it might be towards the end of said career because we don't get to see running backs for very long in the league but um I I do think you are it's a it's a Todd Gurley that's different than a Todd Gurley than we've seen in the past I don't know how I don't really compare him to where he was at different points in his career because I think in every single era of his his career even going back to college it's been a different Todd Gurley every single time since we're talking about Georgia running backs you covered DeAndre Swift for a little bit right I did yeah what you're seeing from Swift now as a rookie like is that what you kind of expected he'd be what was he like in college as well 
So the very, you always heard, so I'm going back to the uh, 2017 year when they went to um, the SEC championship, the Rose Bowl, the national championship. Um, that was his freshman year, if, I'm, if I remember correctly. So he's, of course, like, you have Nick Chubb, you have Sony Michelle, who are like veterans in, in their like final year at Georgia. And you know, they're, they're the workhorses as they should be. Um, but I'll never forget in the SEC championship, uh, it was in the, um, the second half and DeAndre Swift runs out there and he takes off for like the 75 yard touchdown run in the SEC championship against Auburn. And, uh, that was the lead of like my story that night, because it was like, here's this freshman, like coming in for Nick Chubb and Sony Michelle in the SEC championship. And like, he kills it. Like he absolutely kills it. So, um, I only got to, to cover him for that, like the last, like his first two years. And so you're looking at a, a guy who obviously he's like, we were talking about with Todd Gurley with running backs, they grow so much and they do so they, they see so much and they become different, different players to a certain extent. And I think that's something that you've seen with DeAndre and It'll, I'm really curious to see how he takes this rookie year and builds off of it because I know there have been some moments where, you know, hasn't been all that great. Um, but, <laughs> I mean, that's with, that's with any rookie. Right. Like, they're going to go through it. But, um, but yeah, I, I'll be interested to see how he grows in the next year because you always hear going from year one to year two is the biggest jump that you make. And um, I know just from what I saw when he was a – literal 18 year old like at Georgia I mean he's pretty good then he's pretty good now so the steps that he takes are, are really important so um I don't know it'll be interesting I, I like what I see from him granted like what you said we don't get a lot of chances just to watch um watch some guys but uh watch different teams outside of the ones that we cover but what I have seen, I, I don't hate it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, he listen, it couldn't have gotten any worse for him in the jump, right? Because he, Right, yeah. I mean, th this is a com potentially a completely different conversation with the Lions if he holds on to that touchdown, touchdown pass against totally. the Bears. So that's where he was in week one. And the fact that I think that didn't completely tank him mm -hmm. for the season is a good sign for him. I was just wondering what you saw from him as a – I was to say rookie because that's where my mind's conditioned now. But as like a freshman and a sophomore, like whether you could predict potential NFL success for him even then, even though obviously he didn't play a lot as a freshman. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, definitely. And I mean, that it goes back to what I was like talking about the SEC championship. I mean, he went out there and he, he, he just took off. And like, that's really, I mean, you knew that Georgia doesn't bring in running backs just for the sake of bringing in a running back. They are going after these significant running backs because they have a legacy to uphold now that you've had a Todd Gurley, a Nick Chubb, a Sony Michelle, like come through in the span of a like four year time period. So I, I know everybody's like, everybody has their opinions on who's like running back you and everything like that. But like, to have DeAndre Swift be the next guy in that lineup, I think is a pretty big deal. And I do think that you're going to see him kind of get his footing a, a bit more. Since you're a Georgia grad, Matthew Stafford, when you were there, was he still being talked about like as Matthew Stafford or because college kids are college kids at that point, did people kind of move on and say, all right, you know, next, I guess it was what probably Eason or, whoever it was at that point in time. Georgia's had a lot of quarterbacks. So many quarterbacks. Um, I know for me, like, I, I, think I, I think Matthew Stafford was the quarterback at UGA when I was, like, a, in, like, late middle school, early high school, I think is <laughs> what it was. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's all right. For those who can't see, I just put my head in my hands because now I feel horribly old. <laughs> I apologize. Um, I'm dating. I'm dating everybody um, and my, dating myself. Um, yeah. So I. I mean, I remember I'd go to ask. My dad was. A, he, my family's huge Georgia fans. My uh, uncle was the first hairy dog after they won the national championship in in the '80s, and so um, we, lo we loved Georgia football. And so, of course, you know, watching Matthew Stafford play was great. He was one of the most reliable guys that you ever saw go through. And then you had Aaron Murray and 
then the whole thing with Jacob Eason and uh, Jake Fromm and like all, all that kind of stuff was when I was in school was all of that with, with uh, Jacob Eason, everybody thinking that he's going to be the savior of Georgia football. And then this Jake Fromm kid from Warner Robins comes in and like beats him out and takes Georgia to the national championship. Like it was just crazy. Um, but I'll tell you this. I follow Kelly Stafford on Instagram and my mom and I are absolutely obsessed with their children. Those four girls are like our, I'm not joking. My mom will send me like, uh, anytime, like she posts any type of video of like Hunter. My mom loves Hunter. Hunter is like her favorite. If she had a favorite, I don't know. But like we sent, we're like, oh my gosh, did you see what Kelly posted about Hunty? Like, we're like, it's the craziest thing. I'm like, this is this. Is, I know this isn't obviously about Matthew Stafford as as a football player. That's but fine. I had, to, I had to throw that in there because my mom and I talk about that family all the time. I, I like. I probably shouldn't say that like out 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 to people, but like we love them so much. <laughs> now, I, I will say this: following Kelly Stafford, because obviously I have to do it for professional reasons. Right. It, it's it's always interesting. Like I I will wholly admit this. I don't think I've ever admitted this before. Like. I have very few notifications on my phone because otherwise I have two phones, but like on my work phone, I have very few notifications. Schefter, one of my competitors on the beat. And in all honesty, Kelly Stafford, because I never know what she's going to post. I love that so freaking much. I love, I, I'll have to tell my mom that because I'll be like, hey, we're not the only ones who are like keeping up with Kelly Stafford. I mean, I have to, though. I just want to clarify, I have to. <laughs> well, but because you just don't, I mean, she's been very, she, Kelly has been very vocal in the past about different things, including yeah. her husband. So you just never know. Right. As you yeah. know, as a beat reporter, like, Oh, there totally. are just certain people that, like when Darius Slay was on the Lions, I had Darius Slay as a notification because you just never knew, especially towards the end before he got traded mm-hmm. uh, type of thing. But that's that's interesting that you and your mom both follow Kelly Stafford. I find that hilarious. Oh, we, lo- we love that family, like, so much. We talk about them way too much. Like, my dad, like, he, he'll always just be like, so what, what are the twins up to? We're like, well, they just got these uh, uh, these Georgia Bulldog rolly rolly things that they've been rolling across the house. Like, we're we're we lo- we keep up with them way too much. Like, because I de- we definitely don't have to do it for our jobs. We just love to know what those kids are up to. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie, I did I know exactly what video you're talking about, and I did laugh at that. <laughs> so, just a couple more questions for you. First, I'm just curious on your Kirby's. You're what, 24, 25? Yeah, 24. What's that like covering the NFL at 20? Because when I was 24, I was like barely covering like college football. What, what's that like covering the NFL at 24 in your first year being in whatever this is in 2020? Yeah. Um, I'm not going to lie. There have been many moments where it sucked. Like it's, it's been tough. It has been so tough because the, the part of the NFL that you're most excited, like coming from covering college for so long, the part of it that you're most excited about with the NFL is like, you don't have the restrictions that you have with college. Like you get to go in the locker room, you get to shoot the bull with these guys. You get to actually like get to know them and then get to know you. Same thing with these coaches and these, these assistants and these staff members, all of that was taken away. All of it. Like in the only time that I get to communicate with these players are over these zoom calls and, and the, 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 you know, working for the athletics, such a big part of, our readers want these really in-depth feature stories on these players and on these coaches. And it's really hard to provide that when you're asking these players questions on a zoom call and you are only allowed two questions per zoom call and that's it. And, and you don't, you know, they're not going to open up to you about something maybe traumatic that happened in their past, like on a zoom call with 25 other people, like that's just not going to happen. So that part of it, the part of like building sources, like the part of getting people to trust you, getting people to know you, being able to go up to someone and shake their hand and have a conversation, not about football so that they know like, Hey, this girl's just not out to get me. Like that is, it's just all been taken away. Like, and you're having to navigate, not only am I having to navigate coming onto an NFL beat, but having to navigate what that means during a pandemic, it's been really tough. And I'm looking forward to the day where I feel like I'm, I use this analogy a lot, but it's like, I don't, I I feel like I'm treading water 
all the time. And really early, I felt like I was drowning. I feel like I couldn't get my head above water. And uh, now I feel like, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm treading, but I'm kind of going in circles. Like I'll be really excited when I get to the sandbank and I can just kind of like let the waves like come and go. And I'm, I'm on like solid ground and I'm not go, I'm not having to like tread water all the time. Cause that's what I feel like right now. It's, so it's been tough, but you know, kind of make do with what we can. It's been tough for everybody in the pandemic. Yeah. I was going to say, if it makes you feel any better, me at 39 it this year has been very similar. Like you're just kind of, you're, because what I try to do is I try to tell bigger feature stories as yeah. well. And you just sit there and you're just like, all right, well, that was an interesting day of Zoom. That was not super helpful for me. <laughs> yep. Uh-huh. There have been many times where I've just like gone back and transcribed stuff and I'm like, well, I guess I could do something, but none of this is exceptionally compelling. So. <laughs> oh, I totally agree. Uh, obviously don't necessarily want to end on a sad note, but as you know, uh, you know, Vaughn was supposed to be on this call. Yeah. Uh, for those who've listened to the podcast, Vaughn McClure, ESPN Falcons reporter, a guy I've known for 13 or so years, uh, passed away last week. What, what was Vaughn? Because I know everybody has a Vaughn story. I know you weren't around Vaughn, but what, what was Vaughn like for you? Like, co- like competing, because I know it was like to compete against them and right. work with them. Like yeah. for you as a new person, like competing against him, what was just like being around Vaughn the last few months? Um, well, I will say it was a, a real honor to, to be able, I know I was only on the beat for two and a half months and, you know, I, the first time I met him was the first day that I went up to training camp, like, and, um, we, we had a few conversations like here and there. And he always, he always just seemed to be so good at his job. Like that was something that I was just like, why I would just like watch him out at practice with his binoculars and you know, him writing down and he's, he's tweeting stuff. And it, there was one time specifically in, uh, it was right when practice started and, um, Dante Fowler, he had, he had been working through like an ankle injury or whatever. And something about Vaughn is Vaughn is always, he, he's always the first person who like could notice somebody wasn't out at practice or like, so he could pick out, I mean, it was crazy because here I am like with my binoculars up on this hill, like I don't even know where I'm supposed to be looking right now. Like there's so much going on and who do I want to look for today? But he knew he always came in and he was like, okay, so-and-so is here. So-and-so is not like, and I honestly had his, like, you're talking about tweet notifications and stuff. Like I had his, like, I would go on his Twitter and be like, okay, who, who's Vaughn saying's not here because here's my list. I need to compare it to Vaughn's. Like, all, that's always how it was, but there was one day, one specific day in practice, and I had tweeted that Dante Fowler was not out at practice because I didn't see him. And uh, so we're, it was like me and D-Led, who covers uh, the Falcons for the AJC, and Vaughn, and we're standing there, we're talking, and we're talking about who's there and who's not. And I was like, did y'all see Dante? Because I was, I was starting to get like some cold feet about like my tweet. I was like, I know I, I know I didn't see him, but like maybe I need to ask them. And Vaughn was like, Oh no, he's out there. Like he's out there for sure. And I was like, I don't, I don't think he is. Like, I just don't think Dante's out there. And so we went back and forth and we're looking and like, they're telling us to like get off the hill. And we're still like looking with our binoculars for Dante. And finally we were like, Dante's not out there. Like we came to the conclusion that he was not out there. And the whole time we're walking back to our cars, Vaughn was just like, Hey, thanks for that. I just missed that. Like, I appreciate it. He was like, your, your eyes are younger than mine. Like, and it was just a really, it was just really funny because like I, that was something of, about Vaughn that I like looked up to is how like he just knew where everybody was on the field at all times and who to look for. And I mean, again, so, so good at his job and the fact that, you know, he, he thanked me for helping him like, on, like one day was, it meant, it meant so much to me, like being like, at that point, a month and a half on the beat, and like it really did mean a lot to me. And I, I, I know I'll be able to go back to practice um, on Wednesday and Thursday and Friday, and get to go back up on that hill. And to not—that'll be the first time that I'll be out there, and he won't be. And like that'll be a really um, sad moment for sure. Tori, thank you for sharing that, and thank you for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no, thanks for having me on. I I appreciate just jumping on and, and chatting.
It'll be if, if we ever get the chance to do it again, we should definitely do it again. Absolutely. I want to thank my guest, Tori McElhaney from The Athletic, for coming on the show. As you heard there towards the end, Vaughn McClure, who we've talked about all week on the show, was supposed to be the guest here, obviously, was my counterpart in Atlanta, and Vaughn and I go back a long time. And unfortunately, as anyone who's listened to this podcast knows, Vaughn passed away last week at age 48, so... Uh, Tori was kind enough to step in and, and help help me out here and, and preview the Falcons, although it was definitely a little bit different uh, having her on the show versus Vaughn, who I think about all the time. And with that, that is our show for today. And I think it should be a good game on Sunday between the Falcons and the Lions. Uh, I think the Lions actually may win a close one here, but some of that will depend on, as we talked about, Trey Flowers. I think he ends up being a really big key to this game. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Mike Rothstein, and you can follow me on Facebook at Michael Rothstein Journalist. You can follow Tori on Twitter at Tori, T-O-R-I underscore McElhaney, M-C-E-L-H-A-N-E-Y. Check out all of her work at The Athletic. Again, thank Tori so much for coming on the show. Check out our podcast. Feel free to give us a five-star review on iTunes or Apple if uh, that's where you listen to your podcast. Otherwise, just please download and subscribe. It only helps us going forward, and we'd appreciate it. With that, we will talk with you on Monday. The wait is over. Football is back. You might not be at a game this year, but you can still be in on the action at Bet Online. Bet Online is going the extra mile to make sure you can get in on every possible chance to win this season. From game spreads and totals to team player and coaching props, Bet Online gives you more options to wager than anywhere else. You can get in on their season opening bonuses today and start off wagering on wins, division, and championship futures all day, every day. Head to Bet Online today. And get, take advantage of all of the great sign-up bonuses. Don't forget to use the promo code BLUEWIRE at betonline.ag. That's BLUEWIRE, all one word. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts.